Is it possible to have peace in this world? Well, that's what Dr. J. Vernon McGee asked today on Through the Bible. I'm your host, Steve Schwetz, welcoming you aboard the Bible bus for another great adventure in God's Word. Now, I know that you're going to love today's study, so why don't you go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 85. And while you do that, let's welcome Greg Harris, Through the Bible's president, into the studio. Thanks, Steve. It's always great to be here for these family talks with our listening family. And we love just to tell the story of what God is doing around the world. And uh, today we want to kind of focus in on Eastern Europe because that's where our world prayer team is traveling with stops in Russia, Bulgaria, Ukraine, Lithuania. And today we're praying for the country of Poland. Hmm. Now. For those of you that maybe aren't familiar with our Polish ministry, we do have a well-established ministry there. The Bible, through the Bible, I should say, has been heard in Polish since 1983. So you're talking 40 40 years years of commitment to that ministry. And God has been so good because we've seen the fruit over the, over the decades that the ministry's been in, in Polish. Yeah. And you think about that was before the fall of communism when we started and, and then all of the challenges after. And we know we often talk about the challenges of ministry in Europe. There's there's that post-communist uh, residue in, in yeah. the culture and in the minds and hearts, the, the sort of the anti-God thinking. And then there's all of the challenges economically and all of the ritualistic background. So getting the word of God to people is a high priority in the in the this part of the world. Yeah, let's read some letters from there. Here's the first one. It says, I come from a ritualistic background, and my entire family believes in praying to saints. I am very disappointed in my church, but cannot tell my family as it is deeply ingrained as a tradition. Lately, I've started looking for other options on my own. Reading the Bible with you for a month now, I have come to the conclusion that I want to start a series of conversations to find out more about how I can know God personally without an intermediary. Thank you for encouraging me to do this, approving me, and I promise you that I will be very serious about the Bible. Who would think that a systematic Bible teaching program would have such a powerful evangelistic effect? Amazing. Yes. Now, I love, we get some amazing letters from prisoners around the world. And for some reason, particularly in Poland, we hear from prisoners. Here's one who writes, I'm trying to get an early release or a break in serving the sentence due to serious health issues. Hmm. Your messages are great for further spiritual growth. When serving my sentence, I have led several people to Jesus. Praise the Lord. Some of them got baptized and served God. Yes, praise the Lord for that. In, in prison. In baptized. prison. Sounds like the Apostle Paul. Yep. Uh, the prisoner in Poland continues. I recently took part in an evangelism meeting with other inmates. Another two people gave their lives to Jesus. I am rejoicing. Such an encouragement. I, I think we got time for another letter. This is from Poland. I thank you for your program through the Bible and for your correspondence. I am sorry I'm only responding now, but I had a lot of things to do and I couldn't find the time. I'm often so tired that I fall asleep when reading the Bible. I'm getting old. However, I know my life is in God's hands, and whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And I know that he is watching over everything. He is with us in good and bad times. My wife is in hospital, so please pray for her. We continue with you in the fellowship of his spirit and joy of the word. So if you ever wonder, when we say we're taking the whole word to the whole world, 
Is it really happening? Or, is, or we're flinging the seed of the word of God. Is it really taking root? Just these three uh, letters from someone who's coming out of a, a religious ritualistic background yeah. and saying, I really want to know the real God, a prisoner, uh, and, and a man that's just experiencing uh, old age and real life and challenges. Yeah. So many great things happening. Yeah. Let me pray for uh, specifically the Polish language and then also for the program as it goes out. Lord, we are thankful for the for the way you have allowed through the Bible for the last 40 years to faithfully deliver the teaching of Dr. McGee, but more importantly, your word to the Polish people. I pray that you would continue to use it to your glory. I pray for the program as it goes out now that people would come to Christ as a result of even this program. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's time now to open to Psalms 85 to 88 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. We come to the 85th Psalm, and this is a psalm that certain critics have attempted to identify it with the return under Ezra and Nehemiah. And actually, it has no reference to that whatsoever. And the reason that the critic has done that is because he has not recognized that the psalms are prophetic. And this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And we are in this section here where we have several writers of the psalms. And the amazing thing is that they tell a story. These psalms have been put together. Now, I'm not going to insist on the inspiration of the arrangement of the psalms. But believe me, it looks to me like God had an oversight of it because they're systematized in a way that tell a story. And we have found one cluster here, another cluster there, and a bunch of them here. And as a result, why they tell out a prophetic story or present a prophetic picture. And that's what we're having in this section here. And this psalm looks to the future. That is my reason today and there are a great many people think that I'm rather narrow in this connection. Some call me narrow and others call me square. And how can you be narrow and square at the same time? I don't know. Because if I squared, you'd have to be a little wide. But regardless of that, I have no confidence in any translation made by liberals. I feel like a certain minister here in Southern California put it, he says, we might as well trust a lunatic for a lawyer, a quack for a physician, a wolf for a sheepdog, an alligator for a babysitter, or a communist for our president. No modernist can be trusted with the translation of the Word of God or the proclamation of the Word of God. And that's the end of his quotation. And you know, I say amen to that. My feeling is that we need a translation by man who believed they were translating the very Word of God itself. And therefore, I can accept some of these modern translations. Now, what we have here in this psalm, therefore, is a picture of the future. Now, will you listen to it? Psalm 85, verse 1. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Now, you see, because of that statement, why they assume that it means the return from the Babylonian captivity. But actually, a very small remnant returned at that time, less than 60,000. 
and the bulk of the people did not return. And this has no reference at all to that. This is looking forward to the kingdom when God brings them back into the land. Now listen to it. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. What a glorious, wonderful picture this is. And it can have only reference to the future. It certainly didn't depict the condition in that day, if you think that it does. Read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. Why, Malachi goes after these people because of the fact their hearts were far from God. Oh, they were attending the temple and bringing sacrifices, but their hearts were far from God. This is a different picture here altogether. Now, will you notice, Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. The judgments are over. They are in the background. And that for the child of God today is true as far as our sins are concerned. I'm not worried about the sin question. That's been settled. The old account was settled long ago. When Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that settled it. I'll tell you something that does trouble me a little. In fact, troubles me a whole lot is the fact I'm to go before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, and every man will give an account there of his works. And I'm not sure about some of those. No wonder Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I've got to wait till I come before him. Oh, I hope he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, but we'll have to wait and see about that. But salvation, friends, that's all in the past. Now, here, all the judgment is over for these people. You see that the worst time for this nation and for the world is in the future. The Great Tribulation is global in its extent, and it is a time, actually, of judgment. It's a time when Satan is turned loose. The Holy Spirit is removed from restraining evil. He'll be here, but he'll not be restraining evil. The lid will be taken off. And the fellow that wanted to paint the town red is going to have a big enough brush and plenty of paint in that day to do it. And God's going to let them go the limit. There's brought together in a focal point everything in the way of judgment and evil. And that's the reason I don't want to be here. And I don't think that I will. And to say the church goes through that period is... I think entirely to miss what the great tribulation really is. Now, will you listen to verse 4? Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generation? No. The day is coming when these people that have suffered, as we saw in another psalm, they had tears to drink and they had tear sandwiches. They eat. That was their diet. They were not on a Weight Watcher diet either. They were on a diet of tears. But that's over now. And the time's come. You'll wipe away all tears. Now he says in verse 6, "...wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee?" And today we need revival for several reasons in the church. One is there's a lack of joy in the lives of believers. It should be there, but it's not. Verse 7, Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. How wonderful. This is something all of us, our hearts, can enter into. And listen to this. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he'll speak peace unto his people 
and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly, and they'll not again, because this will be the final time, and they'll not be again turning to sin. Sin's to be removed from his universe. Now, verse 9, Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, and glory may dwell in our land. Oh, what a picture. And glory is not in that land today. I think it's a wonderful land. I enjoy visiting over there. But I see nothing in the way of glory in that land today. Just a bunch of rock and a great many sacred places to us that are Christians. Now, verse 10. Listen to this. This is one of the most remarkable verses in the Scripture. It says, Mercy and truth are met together. They haven't even met each other today, let alone meet together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now, they're not on speaking terms today. And one of the reasons we can't have peace in the world is because we do not have righteousness in the world. Things have to be right, friends, before you can have peace in this world. And things are not right today. Things are not right anywhere. Things are not even right in my neighborhood. And maybe things are not right in our lives today. And until things are right, There'll be no peace on the earth. This is a great verse. Now, verse 13, Righteousness shall go before him and shall set up in the way of his steps. When the Lord Jesus reigns, he'll reign in righteousness. Now, in Psalm 86 that we come to here, we have a prayer of David. Back to a Davidic psalm. And it's a prayer of David. It's a rather remarkable prayer because... If you go through it, you'll notice how many times the word, O Lord, occurs. And bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I'm poor and needy. Then verse 3, be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Now, I've referred to the two names that occur in the book of Psalms that we've had. Elohim, which speaks of God as Creator and Jehovah, which speaks of God as Savior, the one who's holy, and yet the one who is a Savior. Now we've got another word for God here, and the translation is made accurately, O Lord. And it's Adonai, Adonai. And that, I think, is important because of the fact that the pious Jews in that day did not pronounce the name Jehovah. That was a sacred, that was that sacred tetragram. They just didn't use that. And in course of time, they actually did not know how to pronounce it. And today, you find that these scholars debate whether it should be Jehovah or Yahweh, and there are one or two other pronunciations. But there's no question about this. This is Adonai, and they substituted this word instead of Jehovah. And I would say that it refers to God as our Savior, the one who is the holy God who has been able to extend mercy unto us. And this is a very remarkable psalm, and there are those that have attempted to call this psalm a messianic psalm. I do not think that this could be called a messianic psalm in the strict sense of the word, because verse 11 is the example that I'd like to call your attention to. It says, "'Teach me thy way, O Lord,' I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Well, I don't think that you could apply that to the Lord 
Jesus in any way at all. For the very simple way that it could apply to you or to me, but he came here to do the Father's will. He was always in the Father's will. He'd never need to pray a prayer like this, unite my heart to fear thy name. It just wouldn't apply to him at all. Someone has put it like this, and I'd like to give you this extended quotation regarding this expression, unite my heart to fear thy name. This is indeed what is everywhere the great lack among the people of God. How much of our lives is not spent in positive evil, but frittered away and lost in countless petty diversions which spoil effectually the positiveness of our testimony for God. How few can say with the apostle, this one thing I do, we're on the road, not at least intentionally off it, but we stop to chase butterflies among the flowers and make no serious progress. How Satan must wonder when he sees us turn away from the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them when realized as his temptation and yet yield ourselves with scarce a thought to endless trifles lighter than the thistle down for which the child spends all his strength and we laugh at him. If we examined our lives carefully in such an interest as this, how we would realize the multitude of needless anxieties, of self-imagined duties, of permitted relaxations, of innocent trifles which incessantly divert us from that in which alone is profit. How few, perhaps, would care to face such an examination day by day of the unwritten history of their lives. And Grant wrote that. That is remarkable. I find a great many Christian workers today, they're not in open sin, but they sure are lazy. And they kill time doing this and that, and they are busy here and there, and the main business remains undone. They are not watching the stuff. They're not guarding the stop. They are not alert today in serving the Lord. This, I think, is a remarkable statement. Now, the statement ahead of it was, Teach me thy way, O Jehovah. Now, that's, I think, the answer to it. You remember the first thing that Paul said when he was converted was, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord had already answered his prayer. And that prayer was back in the psalm, teach me thy way, Jehovah. How we need that. And he's promised. He says, I'll teach thee in the way in which thou shalt go. And then we can say, I'll walk in the truth. And that means we should walk in the light and the knowledge of the word of God. This is a marvelous psalm. Now, we move down to Psalm 87. And Psalm 87 is one of these Korah psalms it is a psalm, I think, not for the sons of Korah, but of the sons of Korah. And it's a song, and it has to do with Zion, the city of God. And I hear people say today, I'm marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. I don't know where they're going, but they are apparently going. And the city that we're referring to here happens to be over yonder in that land. And when we were going up, some of us in a car... And the others couldn't sing any better than I could, so it didn't sound very good. But 
we sang, we're marching to Zion. Only thing was, we were riding, but we were on the way actually to Zion. And that is where it is, by the way, over there. Now, notice what he says here. His foundation is in the holy mountains. And we are finding that's where it is, by the way, over there. That's where the government of the world will be. That is what the Word of God says. For instance, in Zechariah 2, 10, 11, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. Now, again, we're still in this section that's known as the Leviticus section, and the tabernacle and temple are the very heart of it. Listen to verse 2. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. What a picture it is. He says, I'll make mention of Rahab and Babylon. I think that's a very interesting expression because Rahab means pride and Babel means confusion. And all the pride and confusion of the world is coming to know. O God of hosts, forget us not. Remember us, even in these days. And all of that will be remembered, but just a mention made of it. And then this is going to be a city. And this is very interesting to me, that when the world comes up against Jerusalem, the Lord comes, there's going to be a conversion at that time of quite a few nations. And have you ever noticed the nations that are mentioned there? And it says here in verse 4, I will make mention of Rahab, Babylon, to them that know me, behold, Philistia and Tyre, with Ethiopia. This man was born there. The Ethiopian was born there. This is all very interesting because when the gospel started down the highways of this world, when it left Jerusalem, the first convert that is given to us is the Ethiopian eunuch. This man was born there born again. But this has reference to that future day. And I believe the entire nation of Ethiopia will be converted at that time. Verse 5, And of Zion it shall be said, This and that man were born in her. There'll be other nations there. And the highest himself shall establish her. That'll be the capital of this earth. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there. There'll be quite a few that'll turn to the Lord in that day. They'll recognize they were deceived by Antichrist. Now, in Psalm 88, we come to, I suppose, the most doleful psalm that there is. It's all gloom here. The last one was all glory. But this one is all gloom. It's all gloom and no glory. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. What a picture that we have here. And there's nothing quite as doleful of this. But he is the God of my salvation, and he's holding on to that. It's been a psalm that's been applied to Job and Isaiah, who had the leprosy, and Jeremiah when he was in the dungeon, and Hezekiah when he was sick. And all of that is, of course, mere speculation. You have here the description of a great sufferer. Yet in all the suffering and affliction... He maintains his confidence in God as the God of his salvation. That's the great key to this psalm here. Verse 15 says, 
I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. You see, this man is in a tough, hard place. I've suffered. And the question is why? Wrath and death, the grave and darkness are here summed up together by the sufferer. Well, the psalm ends with an energetic expression of its main thought. And what is that? Well, the darkness is thickest at the end, just as in the morning before the rising of the sun. Hengstenberg made that statement. Why? Why? Well, I'm going to look at that next time, and then we're going to finish the Leviticus section, move on into the Numbers section. Well, we'll have to wait till next time to continue. May God richly bless you, my beloved. Are you experiencing the darkness of suffering today? If so, you can visit ttb.org and download Dr. McGee's digital booklet titled, Why Do God's Children Suffer? It's such a helpful booklet. Or you can call 1-800-65-BIBLE if we can help you find it. And then be sure to join me this weekend for Dr. McGee's Sunday sermon, Pilgrim's Progress. That's from Psalms 120 to 134. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'll meet you back here next time. Walk with God today and in the power and in the strength of His Spirit. Through the Bible is a five-year study of God's entire Word, and together we discover God's purposes in history and our lives, found only when we believe in Jesus Christ. Do you know Him yet?